Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Vlani. This is episode 14 in the Antarctica series of what was originally going to be 20 and is likely to be more than that. So just stay tuned every Thursday to hear all about Antarctica. So today's episode features Mandy Fraser. She's a PhD student at UC Davis in California, and she studies Antarctic fishes. She's done a lot of fisheries research along the way, but for the purposes of this episode, she's going to tell us all about how Antarctic fishes manage stress in the face of changing conditions, like with ocean acidification. She's also done a season of diving in Antarctica, and the story of how that came about was absolutely enthralling to me, so enjoy that. And I'll ask a lot of questions about the logistics of people's research because I find that fascinating. And so she tells me all about how they catch the fish, what kind of experiments they did back at McMurdo, and samples they collected for future and continued research so scientists can make the most of their time on the ice, as they would call it. So thank you all for listening and enjoy. Thank you for jumping on the Antarctica podcast train because I'm excited to hear from you. Uh, yeah, anytime. <laughs> I love people are like, tell me about Antarctica. And I'm like, do you have all day? Because <laughs> I could tell you about it all day. Yeah, so I don't really know what you do. I looked at your Twitter profile and then I saw your UC Davis profile. So would you maybe like to start? Tell me about your research. Sure. So I'm a PhD student in the ecology grad group at UC Davis. Um, I work with Ann Todgem and I study the behavioral and physiological changes that young fish make when they're in stressful environments. Our lab does a whole bunch of different things. Um, we work on species in California and Previously, I worked on a fish that lived in Idaho, uh, and we have the Antarctic work that we do. So um, we're really interested in how animals everywhere cope with environmental change. And specifically, we focus on multi-stressor experiments, so things like warming and acidification. That's what I study in the Antarctic. Um, but I have lab mates who study things like um, warming and loss of oxygen, uh, hypoxia, <laughs> that's the word. <laughs> um, yeah, warming and hypoxia, um, tidal changes in the intertidal zone. There's like a whole slew of things that we do. But yeah, I'm really focused on how polar species cope with environmental change because they really are in a unique situation where they don't have anywhere else to go like other species. Um, so they're stuck. <laughs> so um, in, in physiological ecology, we say that there are four things that an animal can do to cope with stress in its environment. It can move to avoid the stress. It can adapt um, so over generations, it can use existing plasticity to cope or it can die. <laughs> so we don't want, we don't want it to die. Right. So that's out. Um, and it, these guys don't have the option to move, like I said, and on the time scale we're looking at for climate change, that's also not going to happen. 
So the only option they have is to rely on this existing um, behavioral and genetic and physiological plasticity that they already have. Um, so it's a really cool study system where we can like ask that question because I think a lot of other ecosystems we're looking at rain shifts and invasions and all of that, but <laughs> you know, they're, they're not gonna, they're certainly not gonna move um, towards the equator. How does the coping like manifest, I guess, in a fish? <laughs> Cause I don't know anything right? about You're like, is the fish just like, I'm stressed. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one of the big theories that we have in physiology right now is that it's all based on energy metabolism. And so there's this idea of like energy budgeting where you only have a certain amount of energy to do all of the things you need to do in a day. So for a fish that might be to eat, to avoid predators, to reproduce, um, you need to have energy to deal with any um, like stresses to your body. So like tissue repair and whatnot. Um, and so we, what we think happens is that, well, we know that under stress, their energy demand increases. So they're going to have to do some reorganization there. And so what we think that they do is they might, let's say, reduce behavior. So stop swimming as much so that they actually have enough energy to metabolize in warmer waters. Because we know that increased temperature also increases metabolism. So there's ideas like that that we work with. Yeah, that's what I would say we focus on for like how we measure how a fish is stressed. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of um, pretty standard, actually, behavioral assays that we can do to measure stress in fish. Um, so like if you put them in a bucket and you're looking from the top down, do they stay on the edge of the bucket and swim around or do they explore the bucket? Do they go to the center? All of those things tell us about the stress that a fish is experiencing or the anxiety that it's experiencing. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is how do you figure out how stressed it is? Um, so what does like a fish swimming around the edge of the bucket tell you? A fish swimming around the edge of a bucket or um, this also happens in like square tanks. They might go into the corners. It, it shows it's stressed. It's like trying to stay in the best hiding place it can find. Um, so you can sort of think of it as if it were like, it, you can also test this with actually placing like a shelter in there and see if it goes in the shelter. But when there's no shelter to choose from, they'll try and stay on the, the edges or corners. So it's, it's actually, if you can like sort of translate your mind into like a fish's mind, <laughs> It, it makes sense. Like if you were really stressed out um, or your dog is really stressed out, it probably like goes into the closet to hide or you might be like, oh, I just need to go lay in my bed. I'm so stressed. <laughs> it's sort of like that. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I just, I mean, I, I've never thought like a fish before, but now I have. <laughs> so it makes sense. Yeah. I'm always curious, and maybe this isn't interesting to lots of people, but I'm always curious about like, how people actually logistically do their research. So can you tell me about that? For sure. We actually, funnily enough, you asked that question. Um, my PI 
and my my lab mate who's the postdoc in our lab and I we all gave a talk on this yesterday of like the talk wasn't about our science it was only about the logistics because it is like a huge um, mind-blowing amount of logistics so we have all of the things we have to do um, stateside before we go down so there's like extensive medical work um, extensive paperwork extensive packing it's horrifying <laughs> how much packing we have it's like I think last season we shipped down like 40 boxes I think um, with many of those like being giant they're like husky carriers they're huge so all to say it takes a lot of planning and um, given that it's a NSF run program there's just a lot of paperwork and you know you have to get like medically cleared to go it's sort of like being cleared to go to a military base or something like that but then once we do all that we fly through New Zealand so we're already in California um, we usually fly through either San Francisco or LAX go to New Zealand and then when you're in New Zealand um, you have some training that you do like you know typical typical trainings. And then um, they give you your ECW gear, which is your extreme cold weather gear. So I bet you see a lot of the Antarctic scientists like to have pictures in their, their red jacket. <laughs> um, that's sort of like a staple of going down is getting your, your big red. Um, and you get these insane boots called bunny boots that probably weigh like 20 pounds each. <laughs> um, and it feels like you're a duck walking around because they're so big. <laughs> um, and then because of weather in, in, in Antarctica, we usually get delayed in New Zealand for a while. Like the ideal is like, okay, you'll be in New Zealand for two to three days, get all your stuff and your training and then go. That never happens. <laughs> so the past two seasons, we've been delayed for two weeks in New Zealand. Um, which is fine. Like, I think there's sort of a different perspective between the scientists and the staff. <laughs> the staff are like, sweet, we're paid to be in New Zealand. Woohoo. Um, and the scientists are like, oh no, we're running out of time to do all of our experiments. Um, but it, it is fun to get to explore the area around Christchurch a little bit and get uh, breakfast at little breakfast places and coffee and whatnot. Um, but then when we finally get to the ice, so uh, I didn't say I missed the step, we take a military plane to get down to McMurdo. Um, and then we're there and uh, our team, we stay at McMurdo because we are a sea ice team. So yeah, we don't have to go into the, <laughs> go into the deep field like a lot of other scientists who, you know, they're like literally camping in Antarctica for months on end. Um, I, I'm very happy to return to a bed and shower at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, McMurdo is really a small town. It's really cool in that it's like probably the only town in the world that was purely based um, in science and it was created for science. So we have, there's usually around a thousand people there in the summer, but only about 200 of those people are scientists. So there's a huge amount of support staff that are keeping the wheels turning. 
um, everything from cooks to janitors to electricians to firefighters, um, field safety people. It, it It's a whole town. <laughs> um, but it, it makes it this really awesome place to do science because you are fully supported. And like, we don't have to cook our meals. We don't have to clean our dishes. We, if, if something breaks, we can be like, ah, someone who knows what they're doing, please help me. <laughs> um, so it's really special that we get so much support and it allows us to do the experiments that we do. So um, yeah, once we're there, we are an experimental biology group. So basically what we do is we go out in the field and we collect our animals. Um, for us, that means little little baby fish. <laughs> and then we bring them back to station where they have a full aquarium room. And we um, run experimental biology on them. So generally, like I said, we're interested in um, climate change on, on how they're going to affect the physiology and behavior of these fish. So we grow them up in um, different treatments of warming and acidification. Um, and then we run behavior and physiology experiments while we're there. Um, and then we also like collect as many <laughs> samples as possible and bring them back for, for years <laughs> of worth of, of lab stuff to do back, back in the States. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of crazy in, that they have like a whole lab there and a whole aquarium room there. Um, but it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I have heard a lot about McMurdo. I mean, a little bit, I guess, that it's like around a thousand people, that it's basically this town, which it just sounds like a really cool place to be. Not, I didn't even mean temperature pun, not intended. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So that's cool. So I have two questions. What species are you studying or is it just the age and not the species or a bunch of species or whatever? Yeah. Um, we study really whatever species we can get our hands on. <laughs> um, but specifically we're interested in the young life stages because those are the ones of the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So for fish, if the fish can't make it past the larval stage, you're not going to have any adults to study later. So that's why we focused on the young ones. Um, but the young ones are a lot harder to find often. <laughs> so there's a lot of the, the, the sort of common adult fish species that we know of down there that we have no idea where the larval stages are um, or the juvenile stages. And then just at some point they like appear as adults. <laughs> and you're like, where did you come from? But so we, a lot of our experiments are on the more common species that we know where the, the juveniles live. So these are Trematomus bernacchii, which we call Bernie, <laughs> and um, Trematomus pinellii. Um, they just get to be called pinellii. They don't have a cute nickname. <laughs> um, and these two fish make up a pretty, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but a large proportion of the the biomass or the fish biomass, at least like in the McMurdo area. Um, and then when we can get our hands on them, we also study Pagathinia borkovinki or borks and um, two species of dragonfish. One is Gymnodraco acuticeps 
and the other is Psilodraco breviceps. This species name is like whatever. <laughs> it's not like, oh, we study cod. Like these fish aren't um, common fish for people to know. Yeah. Uh, they're endemic to the Antarctic. But what's kind of fun is all of the the fish species names are named after I original, if you want to call it that, Antarctic explorer. So that's kind of like a fun thing. <laughs> we study fish all the way down to like when they're just little eggs. We study them as larvae, juveniles, uh, sort of looking in that range. And we're we're really interested in how different species may cope in different ways, um, or some species may have a better ability to cope than others. So I, I really enjoy getting to work on a lot of different species. I think it's really interesting. And what also what I'm really interested in is they all have different niches, right? And um, the niches of the adult life stages are like relatively well-known, you know, keeping in mind we're still in Antarctica. <laughs> but for the young life stages, we really don't know that much about them. Like I said, like for some of them, we have literally no idea where they even are. And so I think it's interesting to think about how for a lot of young critters, whether it's fish or other critters, having a shelter is critical for them to grow up safe. So think like eel grasses, mangroves, coral reefs, like all of those places provide habitat for all these really vulnerable young guys who just don't want to get eaten. <laughs> um, and in Antarctica, the some of the fish rely on this like icy reef almost. Um, it's really amazing, <laughs> but they the young fish just like nestle into the ice. And it's very clear when you're um, catching them that they, they're relying on this for habitat. So what I'm interested in is what happens to this ecosystem when all of this icy reef melts because of climate change? Because um, not only are they now going to be dealing with all of the other climate change stressors that we talk about, like warming water, acidification, other species invasions, blah, 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 blah. They're also going to lose that critical habitat. So I'm interested in that, that interplay there. Um, and, you know, will some species um, adjust better to a young life living in the rocks instead of the ice? Like, <laughs> are some species predisposed to, to coping with that habitat loss better than others? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm really interested in. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm guilty of this since I don't often think about things underwater. But when we think of climate change, we think, you know, glaciers melt, water rises, but we don't think about the things that rely on, say, maybe some of that ice or structure or whatever, because, yeah, habitat when you're young is super vital. Definitely. And the ice habitat is also super critical for bigger guys, too, like, for example, seals rely on the the surface of the ice for pupping and when there's more cracks in the ice or um just more like water access there the young are really vulnerable to orcas so i losing the ice is not just a problem for 
sea level rise, um, it's really a problem for how the ecosystem functions. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a problem it's, for everybody, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's wild how this ecosystem has evolved on this habitat that is so um, dynamic. Like, you know, the sea ice, it's normal for it to melt um, or to retreat in the summer to some extent. Um, and it breaks out seasonally and, you know, you have oceanfront views uh, <laughs> off of McMurdo. But now with climate change, we have sea ice breakup occurring sooner. It doesn't form until later. It's not as thick. Um, it doesn't form as far out from land. So there's all these different factors that um, are really complicated, <laughs> but really interesting to look at and how they affect the ecology and the, the behavior and physiology of all, of all of the animals that live there. I feel like Antarctica is a prime example of just how much everything is connected and connected in maybe surprising ways or ways we didn't think about and like how it will literally impact around the world. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty um, funny as someone like I study Antarctica, so I'm thinking about it all the time, right? But if someone who I don't know asks me, oh, what do you do for work? <laughs> like, oh, I study Antarctic fish. They're like, the, these ecosystems aren't even on like the edge of their mind. Um, and so many people just get like the Arctic and the Antarctic confused. And they're like, oh, so you see polar bears, right? I'm like, no. But to me, it's just crystal clear how the impacts at the, the edges of the world can have such a huge um, impact on the rest of the world. Like the, I'm sure you've talked to some glaciologists or, or, or will, but it's kind of scary how much the rest of the world relies on the stability of the Antarctic and the Arctic, particularly in like the, the West Antarctic ice sheet. The, the risk of that collapsing is getting higher and higher. Yeah, and it's horrifying. It's horrifying, yeah. And I, I just don't think people realize how drastic the change can be from that. Yeah. I, yeah, I talked to someone who like does glacial modeling. Um, yeah, and I was just like, oh my God, we're all doomed. <laughs> That's how I yeah. felt. But I mean, oh gosh, yeah, it's so, it's so tough. Um, yeah. All right, I don't want to talk about doom anymore. I want to talk about <laughs> So you also said that you collect a bunch of samples as many as you can for future lab work. So like, what are those samples? Uh, they're mostly like just tissue samples. So we dissect the fish. Um, my PI is a boss at dissecting little tiny baby fish. <laughs> I'm like, what are you pointing to? She's like, that's the heart. Don't you see it? I'm like, no. <laughs> um, but so we collect brain, heart, muscle, liver, pretty much any, if the organ is large enough for us to, to take it, we take it. Um, and we also collect fin clips because we'll run all these experiments and um, we need to make sure that they're the right species because some of the species look quite similar and like there's not little 
field guides for baby Antarctic fish. <laughs> so we're like, well, we're pretty sure it's this one, but we're not sure. Or sometimes we'll catch larval fish and have no idea what it is and be like, let's run an experiment on it and then we'll find out what it is later. <laughs> um, so tail clips are really important for us. Um, and most of the tissue samples that we take back will be used for things like enzyme assays to just try and get a little bit closer with a lens at how they're using energy. Um, and it's like a, a cellular lens, if, if you want to think about it that way. Whereas when we do other metabolic experiments, we're looking more at like the whole body level. Um, so this would look at the cellular level. And then we can also do things like uh, transcriptomics, RNA-seq experiments. Um, what are those last things you just said? RNA-seq, transcriptomics, that's sort of the same, same thing, but you look at how different genes are expressed differently. So um, RNA-seq, you can think of it as differential expression. So just because two fish might have, let's say they have the exact same genome, based on the environment they've been in, their genes may be expressed differently. So yeah, we're not looking at the actual DNA sequence. We're looking at it after it's been um, expressed, but before the protein. Okay. No, I understand. I was yeah. just curious. I was like, wait, I don't know those words. What does that mean? <laughs> no, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, it's it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah. So I, we now asked for the samples where I was curious because if you don't know what the species is, like, how, I guess there's a way to figure that out. Is it like a like sort of physical characteristics or is it from like the genome? Is that how you figure it out? Yeah, so um, the first step in the species identification would be physical characteristics. Most, I would say like we have a pretty good understanding of the adult species and how to identify them and what their markings look like. Um, so that that is usually pretty straightforward. But then when you get to the younger stages who like most people don't study the young stages, of Antarctic fish, we just don't know what they look younger and younger and younger. And so we try and guesstimate based on where we find them, what they look like, and and how like, oh, I could see how that could grow into a Penelii or whatever. But so if we're not sure, we can take the, the fin clip and check. And how we check that is that most of the adult stages have already been sequenced. So that should match um, to the adults that we know of. Yeah, that's cool. It sounds like there's going to be a need if people keep studying baby Antarctica fishes for a field guide. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, we definitely like, we try and compile, um, guides. Again, my PI is boss at this. <laughs> she like has these little charts to help, um, teach her students, like which one is which. Cause I think a yeah. lot of us, when we get there, we're like, they all look like small fish, Anne. <laughs> but then yeah. by the end, we can all sort of see um, the very slight differences. So for example, there's two that look very similar. There's the Bernese and the Penelii. They're both trematomous fishes. Um, and one of the really great ways to ID them is that the Penelii have this really pretty green markings on their um, fins. And they also have like different body patterns. But apart from that, their, their body shape looks like <laughs> practically identical. <laughs> so 
it, it, I don't know. It's sort of one of those things where it's like, since we don't have a published field guide or anything, it's this idea of institutional knowledge, like being passed down from group to group or PI to PI um, or PI to student. I see that a lot in Antarctic science where you just sort of have to like ask around and like get to know each other. It's interesting how much these like relationships influence the science, but for example, it, it happens with IDing fish, um, but also like, hey, where's a good spot to fish for, uh, for this species? And so it's both like learned experience firsthand and then also passed down experience. Like I, I don't know firsthand that Cape Evans is a good place to catch um, Borkovinki adults. But I know that because my PI knows that and so on and so forth. So um, I find that very, uh, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. And I, I feel like Antarctic groups rely on it maybe more than other groups. I don't know. I'm sure all groups rely on it to some extent. Yeah, I think that's probably fairly common in a lot of fields. However, it seems to be like to a whole other level with Antarctic researchers, just based on the dozen people I've talked to so far, it's like there's an intense level of like just information sharing and collaboration, like talking about knowing where to go fish for a certain species, stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So that's pretty fun. <laughs> I think that's cool because I mean, it just makes me, well, it just furthers the example of like how Antarctica is the center of science and collaboration and people working together. And it's cool to see how it manifests in individual relationships. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would say generally teams are pretty collaborative. Sometimes there's teams that you're like, oh, <laughs> you yeah. seem like you are maybe arrogant, <laughs> like in all science, but yeah, um, the, the truly collaborative teams are really a pleasure to work with mm-hmm. and to learn from. Like it's, it's also really fun when you're working there, you're probably either the only or one of two fish teams. And then there might be a sea spider team or a sea star team or a seal team or an engineering team or geology teams. And um, it's just wild to learn from all of the other scientists there. Yeah, you don't often get like a bunch of scientists doing a bunch of different things in one spot that are- Exactly, yeah. Sort of unrelated except for the location, you know? Exactly. Like I spend a lot of time with wetland scientists because that's what I do and you know, uh, we talk only wetland stuff a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, so that would be really cool, yeah. I think that when you were talking about the aquarium system, I think that's really cool because I just find those kinds of experiments where you can sort of like control the variables to be really interesting. And yeah, I'm sure you're getting some really interesting information from that. So that's awesome. Yeah, the aquarium um, capabilities there are truly incredible. And it just, it allows for some really powerful experiments. But, oh, I have to tell you, the most exciting part of the aquarium room is that every season we have a touch tank there. So that way all of the staff um, on on station can come and learn about the animals that live there. Because I think that's like a common misconception of Antarctica is like, oh, it's just a icy continent. Nothing lives there. But then you peek under the ice and it's just this thriving, amazing ecosystem. 
So we try and bring that to station a little bit. And um, we have one tank <laughs> right next to the door that is like, you can only touch the things in this tank. <laughs> but we bring up sea spiders and sea stars and fish and an octopus once or twice, but they usually go back pretty quickly because octopus are, they're real smart. <laughs> they don't like to be in a touch tank. It's just really fun to see all of these like, often like big gruff men who are like, I work on large vehicles <laughs> and they come down and they're like, oh my gosh, look at the fish. And like, I didn't even know that animals like that lived here. So that that's a, a joy to to share with station and it's a joy for us too because like you know science is hard and sometimes you're having like a a long day or a stressful day and you can just go look at the touch tank and like touch a sea star like give him a little high five <laughs> um so that that's that's my favorite part about the aquarium room yeah that's cool there's things that i didn't know existed until recently like sea spiders and i learned that there's deep sea coral uh, and mm-hmm. in it's just, there's so many things I think that people aren't aware of that exist under the water surface that it's just astounding. Yeah, it's astounding. And, and in, in Antarctica, we have the, the polar gigantism. So these animals get freaking huge. Like the sea spiders are truly horrifying in how large they get. They'll literally be like the size of a dinner plate with no exaggeration. Um, and like the corals uh the sponges get massive (laughs) it's it's really wild i've never heard it described that way polar gigantism but it makes sense because things that live in extreme environments are either like really tiny it seems like and slow growing um or they're like massive for what it seems like yeah yeah it's it's wild. Yeah, I I Googled what a sea spider was one time and I was like, no, I'm good. That's, I mean, I don't really have, it's just weird looking. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a sea spider team down um, when we were down last season and I love their team. They're all amazing, super fun to dive with, um, close friends, but like they would bring up their sea spiders and like just keep them in this tank and like pull it out. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> and they're not even related to spiders. I know, it's like, weird. There, she, um, the PI of that team made this um, example of like sea spiders are as related to spiders as seahorses are to horses. Like, <laughs> they are not related at all, but they just look so horrifying. <laughs> yeah, they look like something out of like a sci fi nightmare novel or something. Yes, that is like those are words out of my mouth. Yeah. So you kind of just alluded to this, but you've been diving in Antarctica, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I Last season was my first season diving there. When you study the adult fish, you can just fish for them with a little ice fishing rod. So you go out, drill a hole, um, and just pull up fish like normal. But young fish, you can't do that. Like, they don't bite. Um, so you have to go and get them yourself. <laughs> so yeah, that's why we dive there. It's incredible. It's the most beautiful ecosystem I've ever seen. Uh, the, the ice reefs or ice, uh, brinicles and ice caves, like they're all just absolutely mind blowing. Um, and look, 
It looks to me, when I dive under the ice, I feel like I just dove onto another planet um, because it's just such a weird thing to see. Um, we have a whole bunch of different ways that we collect fish. Um, they're all very high tech. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, it's it's cold. Everyone asks, is it cold? I'm like, yeah, it's, it's very cold. The water is um, like minus 1.7 degrees Celsius. So your face freezes instantly, your toes freeze, your fingers freeze. <laughs> Sometimes your suit leaks and your whole body freezes and that's no fun, <laughs> but it's worth it. And I'm really thankful that I got to dive last season because I think my understanding of the ecosystem just grew exponentially after seeing it firsthand. Like the first season um, that I was there, I wasn't diving and I I was like, okay, yeah, like these ones live here, these ones live here. Okay, that's cool. But actually seeing them has really informed my my questions about how they behave and um, different niche separation and all of those things. Yeah, sometimes just seeing the environment of whatever it is you're studying just makes it all click somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's just been really special. <laughs> it's, um, I, yeah, I don't think... There are many people who dive in Antarctica. Um, yeah, definitely not a long list. <laughs> yeah. But it's thinking about it now, I'm like, did I do that? Because <laughs> right now I'm in Davis, California, which uh -huh. is like, you know, cow town. And I, my dive gear is all just like stuffed under my bed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I was doing that. Huh. That's weird. <laughs> like it, it really feels like this different part of your life when you're on the ice because it's such a different place and that's e even truer for diving there oh I'm sure I I've done very minimal amounts of diving but the diving I have done I felt like I totally was transported to another planet like you said except these were in very tropical environments <laughs> it was not frigid by Rachel's standards um, <laughs> So I can't even like imagine, you know, I've read stories about people diving in Antarctica and I've, I've talked to like one or two other people who have done a little bit and it's just like, I can't picture it, but like having done a little bit of diving, I sort of can almost picture it. I'm just like, yeah, it would probably blow my mind. Yeah. Yeah. The ecosystem is mind blowing and just all the gear is too. It's a big adjustment. Like I think um, we wear these like lobster gloves that are just giant rubber dry gloves and learning how to like do science underwater is already hard. It's a lot harder when you also have cold temperatures. Um, and then it's even harder when you have these like crazy lobster hands that you don't have any dexterity. So it's a huge learning curve just to like figure out how to like exchange regs if you had to and like basic safety um, you have to really practice it because your fingers are frozen <laughs> and you have no dexterity. And then, and then talk about like collecting tiny little fish eggs or tiny fish larvae. And you're just like, oh God, it's so hard. Yeah, I can imagine, but I do not know. Yeah, uh, yeah so that I, answers the question of like, how do you find the little fish? You have to go, you have to go fetch them, basically. Yeah, you have to go fetch them. And we have like general ideas about where they hang out. Um, like some of them, where some of them hang out. The mm -hmm. others, we have no, di no idea. But 
we have a few different ways to, to collect them. Like if we're getting fish eggs, they're the, the one species we study that we know where their eggs are, they lay them on rocks. So you, you just go like scoop them with a little spatula, like one that you would weigh chemicals with. And then you like put it into a little tiny little Nalgene. <laughs> um, and then if we collect larvae, which might be like, like free swimming larvae, but they're still really fragile. So they can't handle being in a net. We like swim through the water with a Nalgene bottle with the bottom cut out and just like try and slowly get them all in the, the, the little bottle. <laughs> um, and then the, the third way is for the little, the older fish, the juveniles, which are still like an inch long. Those ones we, we use in the aquarium net and get them in the net and then put them in a bag, <laughs> a plastic bag. <laughs> yeah, super high tech. Like Super most high tech, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like most field science is some combination of bags and bottles and PVC. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, we we um, we call the physiologists the bucket scientists because like we have so many buckets. It's just like big buckets and medium buckets and little buckets and square ones and circle ones. <laughs> buckets are so useful, though. <laughs> they are. Yeah, they're like little fish tanks, basically. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So did you have a background in diving before this? Like, did you, is that like a thing you did before? So I actually had very little diving experience before. Um, I did my undergrad at the University of Miami and I grew up in Colorado. So before I was 18, never went diving. And I had like seen the ocean when I visited my grandparents in California and stuff, but like I, I certainly did not grow up with the ocean being a dominant factor in my life. But then I, I had a marine biology class in high school in the middle of Colorado, <laughs> strangely enough. And when my parents were saying like, you know, helping me with college applications and trying to like prod me to, to figure out what I wanted to do, they were like, as long as you choose something in STEM, you're good. And I was like, huh? because <laughs> um, I think their hope is that I'd become a doctor or something and like make a lot of money <laughs> and I was like jokes on you I'm gonna study ecology <laughs> um, but when I was applying I was taking this marine biology class and I was like this is really cool that sounds fun so then I looked at universities that had marine biology programs and I found UM um, and yeah so I went there I, I think a lot of freshmen there take their, their open water certification. So I started diving there, but then I just like, I would get so horrifyingly seasick. Like I, it came to a point where I was just like, screw this, like whatever. I don't need to be a science diver to be a marine biologist. Like it's fine. I'll, I'll do stuff in the lab. Cool. Um, so I, I honestly gave up on diving for a couple of years and then, um, then, but before I gave up, I, I dove in very, like a couple other places, not just Florida. I, I really tried to, to get into it. <laughs> um, and it was just painful. <laughs> so a couple of years go by and then we go down to Antarctica and I see the divers there that we're working with. Cause there, there's, if the science team doesn't have their own divers, 
we get help from station divers. They're like the, the long-term science divers. Um, and I was like, wait a minute, you are not diving off of a boat, my friend. <laughs> um, so when we're there, we drive out on the sea ice. We go into a warm dive hut and then just like plop into a hole and swim back up. So there's no boats involved. There's no waves involved. There's no barfing involved, hopefully. So I, I saw them doing that and I was like, I want to do that. Um, and so I came back and we only had about eight months until we were going down the next time. And I was like, Anne, my PI, I want to dive there. Like, are you down with that? And she was like, yeah, as long as you finish your master's also. Because I, at the time I was working on my master's with her and then I was going to, to progress to a PhD. And I was like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> so I was like diving literally every weekend last year. Um, and I, I contacted our dive safety officer at UC Davis in January. And I was like, hey, I really want to dive in Antarctica in eight months. And to do that, I need to get my research diving certification. I need to get 50 or more dives. I didn't even have 50 dives at the time. <laughs> I need um, rescue diving, dry suit diving. I think that's it. All of those things. Oh, and deep water um, diving. So like, <laughs> I hadn't done any of that. <laughs> and I was like, can I do this in eight months? Um, and basically he was like, yeah, let's do it. He was super stoked on it. Um, and I felt absolutely like batshit crazy. <laughs> like going to the, the local dive shop and being like, yeah, I need to take a, a dry suit class. And they're like, oh, cool, where are you diving? I'm like, Antarctica. And they're like, what? <laughs> are you, you're crazy. Um, just, just to think that like, I could do that without having years of diving experience and years of dry suit experience. Um, so I, I really had to like push down that voice in my head that was like, you should just give up and like, you're crazy. And this is never going to happen. Um, and I, I told myself as like, I am never going to forgive myself if I don't try, like I went into it thinking I would fail at some point. And at some point, someone would just say, no, like, you're not allowed to do this. And I was like, I will keep going until I reach that point. Um, and the weeks kept going by and I kept getting more and more dives and more and more experience. And like, I, I just kept getting closer and closer. No one was saying no. <laughs> like the first step was my PI. She was like, sure, sounds good. Then the dive safety officer, then the, um, the scientific like diving certification. And then we have to get university approval because like they don't want their student to die on, under the ice in Antarctica. And then we have to get approval from NSF and like all of these just roadblocks in my mind. And I am still baffled that no one said no, <laughs> but I checked all the boxes I had to. I um, got all the dives I needed and um, they let me dive. <laughs> so it was awesome. And I had like last year was one of those years where I worked my ass off like 
every day I was so focused on getting to dive in Antarctica. I was like, okay, today I need to write my thesis. Okay, tomorrow dive in Monterey. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, it really showed me that you, if you put your mind to something, you can do anything. Like I had never believed that crap. I was like, nah, man, like some things just don't happen. And I mean, there's obviously a lot of barriers in the way um, for a lot of people. And it, it depends on your background and everything. But I think the, the most important barrier that you get past is yourself. And like, there is a huge part of me that was like, this is crazy. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. Don't do this. And I just had to ignore that voice that kept coming up every day. <laughs> every day I'm on this boat. I'm like, Ugh. yeah, that, that is like the bonkers, absolutely bonkers Mandy last year who somehow made it happen and somehow got to dive. And the two, um, the two station divers down there, Rob Robbins and Steve Rupp, they, <laughs> I think they were like, oh my God, <laughs> we have to deal with this like crazy 24 year old who just got all of her certifications this year. Like, oh geez, this is going to be fun. And at first they were like, you know, they were keeping eyes on me and keep it like <laughs> they're like come on Mandy time to get out because I would always want to stay like as long as possible to to just see the ecosystem because it was so mind-blowing um, and to catch as many fish as I could and they're like come on <laughs> um, but it got to the point I think where they they trusted me that I knew what I was doing and they I learned a ton from them too and I always felt stupid asking questions that I thought were like stupid questions like oh, I don't even know and I would do stupid shit like oh I forgot my tank today <laughs> can we go back I forgot <laughs> um or like oh will you help me get my glove off <laughs> just all these things that made me feel stupid but even with like them giving me shit sometimes I knew that they were there to help me and um it, it was really nice having having their support and and then feeling by the end, like I, I maybe, maybe proved myself a little tiny bit. <laughs> wow, that is an amazing story. I was just like enthralled every step of the way. I was like, I know she did die, but this whole like how you got there is amazing. <laughs> Good, yeah, I, I, I'm still shocked, like I said, that someone let me do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so cool though, because like, Diving is an experiment in trust, I think, um, in, you know, under normal everyday recreational diver standards, let alone add all of these other layers of complexity and remoteness and cold water. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. And there's just so many more hoops to jump through. Like if you're at a, a university and you want to dive internationally, you have to go through all this stuff of like, okay, there's these safety things in place. And because obviously university like doesn't want you to die and have bad press for them. <laughs> so like it took a lot of convincing of the powers that be to let it happen. But I think the fact that like, even though we were in a remote place, McMurdo actually has like pretty phenomenal resources. So they have a hyperbaric chamber there. Um, 
And I think that's like a critical piece. <laughs> so, you know, if, if for whatever reason you got the bends, you could be treated there. And then they also have doctors on station and they have the ability to, to medivac people to New Zealand. Um, sometimes like weather is an issue there, but usually they can evacuate people if necessary. Um, and then the fact that I was diving with two of like the best divers in the world <laughs> who have like collectively over 65 years of, of diving experience under the ice. Um, so that I think was good that like they could help me like, you know, figure my shit out. And obviously I was prepared going into it, but, um, there's just inherent risks to, to diving in Antarctica, like the, the cold water makes your gear uh, failure rate a lot higher. So that's like one of the risks. Um, and then of course you only have one exit. So the most important thing is you don't get lost when you're there. Um, but thankfully the visibility is actually really good there usually. Um, and at the beginning of the season, it's, it can be like hundreds of feet actually. So if like, you would have to really not be paying attention to lose the hole. Um, but it is a risk, you know? So, and obviously like I had, um, when, when you're in a dry suit, you have extra risks, like your suit leaking. Um, and in our case in Antarctica, we do not use a BCD um, your, your buoyancy control device. And we only use our dry suit to control our buoyancy. And the reason that that is the protocol there is related to like extra risks of having all of those extra connections and stuff. Um, and the risk of that failing. So we only use that one, um, buoyancy control in your dry suit, but that gives the risk of if your dry suit leaks, which like, let's be real here, dry suits are not dry. <laughs> they leak all the time. Um, at least like, at least a tiny bit they leak. And, but if you have a more severe leak, like you don't have any other buoyancy. So um, that's an extra risk. The risk of hypothermia, if your suit leaks, like there's a lot of stuff to be fair, <laughs> but there's no boats. So in my mind, it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, you know, polar equivalent of beach diving <laughs> where you exactly. just hop in and go for it, but you know, exactly. complications. Yeah. Well, and you don't even have to go through the surf zone. That's the best part. <laughs> you just, yeah. it's like diving in a pool. It's just really cold. Yeah. It sounds like you found the best diving that you, that would work perfectly for you. <laughs> no boats. Yeah, exactly. It was great. And I, I like cold weather. Um, you know, obviously diving is extra cold, but we, we bundle up as best as we can. Um, so we like, you know, there's some things that are just going to freeze no matter what you do, like your toes and your fingers and your face, <laughs> but you can usually keep your core like not frozen. <laughs> not really warm, but not frozen. Um, but yeah, it's just, I've, I've always been fine with the cold and I just have had the attitude of like, you just wear warmer clothes and then you're good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. 
That's so cool. I'm quite jealous. I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm never going to dive in Antarctica. And I, I'm not sure that I want to, but the experience sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, that that's a fair response. And I feel that way about so many other things like cave diving. Yeah, no, no desire at all. Like never have fun. <laughs> I'll be over here in the ice. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny where people's boundaries are, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. Is there anything else you want to share? The only other cute, like cute tidbit you asked me earlier um, about my poster, you pointed it out. This poster actually has its own little story. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I got that poster when I was in either like late elementary school or early middle school um, in Colorado at the uh, at NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. For whatever reason, they were having, I don't know if it was like a field trip or like a bring your family day or whatever it was, but I got this poster there and I just, I, I don't know why I liked it. I thought it was cool. <laughs> and I like hung it up on my wall, had it on my wall all growing up. I definitely had a strong penguin phase for a while there too, <laughs> where like my walls were covered in penguin pictures <laughs> yeah, in my room. Yeah. Penguin stuffed animals, like everywhere. Uh-huh. But I, for one of my birthday parties, when I was a kid, I like, we watched March of the Penguins, which <laughs> quite a depressing movie to choose young, young child, but sure. <laughs> um, but I think like what's important in this story is I always had this attraction to the poles. Um, I just thought the ecosystems were super cool, but I didn't realize that you could do science there until I was late in my college, like years. I like, I remember taught, there was one professor, um, that I would like to just go chat to at, at the university of Miami. And he, had done some work in the Arctic. And he was like, oh yeah, like if you're interested in that, you should try and look at grad school programs for it. And I was like, say what? (laughs) Um, And then I I heard about McMurdo Station and I realized that there's all these science teams going down there. And I was like, you can study penguins and seals in Antarctica and get paid for it what? Like I thought to be a scientist, you had to work in a lab um, in the U.S. Or I thought that if you were going to be a marine biologist, you had to like be interested in coral reefs or dolphins (laughs) or something. Like it took a long time for me to realize that it was a real possibility. Um, And so, yeah, when I was in college, I applied to REU programs, um, any single one that I could find that had anything to do with either Arctic or Antarctic science. Um, And I was lucky enough to get one of those. And obviously I didn't go to Antarctica (laughs) for an REU, but I I got to work on some Antarctic data sets and that got like my toes in the door. And then when I applied to grad school, I did the same thing where I just like applied to any lab I could find that did anything remotely related to either Arctic or Antarctic biology. Um, so I applied to work like with microbes and um, with seals and with fish, like anything. Um, and then I found Anne um, and I found her super late in the application process too, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, 
and it worked out. And I guess like, I, I, I love this poster because it reminds me of that like young child who just like thought this was such a cool ecosystem. And then just slowly realizing like, you can do that for a job. <laughs> and I think that's something that just so many kids and students never get exposure to and never learn. Um, like my, my dad is an engineer, so he, he understood like the college process and like, I need to go to college <laughs> um, and I can consider grad school. He, he went to grad school and stuff, but in terms of like what's available in the, the world of biology and ecology, like I had, did not have parent guidance from my parents. They, they definitely thought I would be a doctor <laughs> up until like, I was in my master's and my parents were still like, so you can still go to med school. <laughs> I'm like, no. Um, but like this one professor at UM really like helped me connect the dots that that was an option. And it just made it so clear to me how important it is to, to show what options there are, you know? And, and that's true for options within academia, outside of academia, um, but I, I find it particularly true for fields in ecology where people like grow up loving animals and loving nature, but just never realizing that there are real life ecologists, like, and they are studying everything and they're not all like old men. <laughs> like it's, I, yeah, I just, I like try and remind myself of that. And that's, that's the story of the Antarctic poster. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience that you were describing at the end where like, I liked playing outside and I liked watching birds, but I didn't know that you could be a wildlife biologist. So I was a senior in high school and I was, I just, you know, I knew biology and I was like, oh, I'll major in biology. Turns out wildlife biology is a thing. And that is what I actually wanted to do. So I think just like putting names to the things and like, yes, this is a career. You know, there's not just like 12 careers out there. There's a whole bunch of things you can do. Exactly. Uh, there's yeah. not just like doctor, lawyer, businessman. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's really important. And also just like showing how many things are within STEM is why I started this podcast. It's like yeah. STEM is so big. It's so big. Yeah. And that's why I love, I've listened, listened to some of the episodes and it's so cool to listen to people's stories. And mm -hmm. that's why like this podcast is such a great idea or things like Skype a scientist and letters to a pre-scientist, like oh, yeah. all of those programs, I just find awesome. And it's like, how many kids can we reach? And like, how soon can we reach them? You know, cause yeah. So many of us didn't figure out this crap until we were in high school or college that like you can do these things. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, I think that's a great place to end. So it's been so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thank you for, for the, the chat. It was super fun. Um, I'm really happy Priya was like, Oh, Mandy did stuff in Antarctica. I'm like, yes, I'll do. <laughs> Yeah, I know that worked out really well. I was like, oh, there's so many people that want to talk to me that I will talk to all of them no matter how long it takes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Hey, y'all, it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So 
Here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Enjoy.